Let's pray. Almighty God, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Help us, Lord, um, to know uh, how to build our life uh, on the Lord Jesus Christ, because the man, the wise man, builds his house on the rock that is Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. All right. Uh, first of all, before I begin, um, no, I have not been ex- spending exceeding time in the Lord's presence so that my face has begun to glow. Wish I could say that. No, I am not perpetually embarrassed. Um, my face is burnt to a crisp. <laughs> what happened was I knew that I was preaching on wisdom this morning, so I decided to stay out in the sun all day so that it would add a nice contrast to this uh, silver mop on my head, and you might think that I'm more wise than I really am. Actually, what happened was I went to my uh, son's um, track meet yesterday. Who thinks of putting on sunscreen at the beginning of March? (laughs) So uh, I found out that here in Florida, March is not too early to use the sunscreen. That being said, let's get started. Uh, I want you to see if you can, and I, I know you can do this, Fill in the blank with a last name. When I say Gene Jocks, who? Who's the last name? Gene Jocks Rousseau, right. Um, Rousseau was a very important figure in world history. He was born in France in 1712. He died in 1778. His early writings greatly influenced the French Revolution. Uh, he wrote several books that uh, helped shape Enlightenment thought. His work on the social contract and the, uh, the discourse on inequality became cornerstones of modern political and social thought. He also wrote a book on educating children that became very influential. A very bright man. He did much to shape the world of his time. In fact, his writings continue to inform uh, our generation. But Rousseau could not manage his own life. In fact, someone said that you could pick a person off the street uh, at random, and that person off the street would, in all likelihood, morally speaking, be be way better off than the self-elected intellectual who constantly pontificated about morality and how society should be ruled and arranged. David Hume, uh, the great philosopher, one of Rousseau's contemporaries, said of Rousseau that he was a monster who saw himself as the only important being in the universe. Although Rousseau proposed to know what was best for humanity, he knew nothing of the common man's life, and he showed almost no real concern for actual people. Rousseau said of himself, I feel too superior to hate. I love myself too much to hate anybody. 
Even though he wrote a very influential book on educating children, he took his own children to an orphanage and left them there because he was too important to be bothered by them. Rousseau illustrates for us that there is a big difference between possessing knowledge and possessing wisdom. Many very knowledgeable and smart people have ruined their own lives and the lives of countless others because they did not possess wisdom. If you like this sort of uh, biography, uh, I do want to give you a, a, a quick book recommendation. Paul Johnson's The Intellectuals. He goes through all the intellectuals that shaped our modern world and showed how hypocritical and unable they were to live a moral or uh, even ordered life because they were so uh, immoral and so chasing after uh, continual self-gratification while telling everybody else how they should live. What's the difference between knowledge, like what Rousseau obviously had, and wisdom? Well, wisdom is not simply intelligence or knowledge or even understanding. You can't acquire wisdom from a textbook. So where do you go to acquire wisdom? The beginning for the acquisition of wisdom starts, of course, with the fear of God. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. By definition, If you do not start your search for wisdom with God at the center, you will not find true wisdom. Because you will start with you and your concerns at the center. The beginning of wisdom starts with the fear of God. The search for wisdom does not just begin with God, but it continues with Him. I want to give you a verse this morning that you may not have considered uh, in your search for wisdom. I think it's an important verse. James chapter 3, verse 17. The wisdom from from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. There is a whole world full of very smart people who are strangers to these character traits that James lays out for us. In fact, I would direct you to the book of James in your uh the book of James in your pursuit of wisdom. James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, James says, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. You know, when I would pray this verse for years and years, uh, Lord, I need wisdom. You've promised to give it to me. And then I'd reach deep down inside me and I'd try and conjure up this strong faith. Okay, if I can conjure up this strong faith, then God will give me wisdom. I don't think that's exactly what he's meaning. In fact, that's far from what James is saying. We're not to look inside ourselves and conjure up faith within ourselves. That's placing our faith within our faith rather than placing our faith 
in God. So what does it mean to ask in faith? Because he says you've got to ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. What does it mean to ask in faith? I think it means that we should trust God in the pursuit of wisdom. If you haven't already turned there, I do want to encourage you to turn to James chapter 3, verse 17. It says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So when you are seeking God for wisdom in a decision, I think asking in faith means relying on God and His wisdom to give us wisdom. In other words, if you're seeking God for wisdom in a decision, you might want to ask yourself this question. Is it pure? In other words, will my decision be pleasing to God? The decision I'm contemplating. Or will it promote peace? Because, again, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. So will it promote peace? Sometimes the decision to withhold information is the wise course. Sometimes um, the wise course that promotes peace might not give you peace um, in the short term. Someone that you speak truth to uh, may become very angry at you. And so it may not promote your peace, but does it promote godly peace? Truth is a precious jewel. And so it should be handled carefully. Sometimes you open your mouth. Sometimes you shouldn't open your mouth. Every time you open your mouth, it should be to promote peace. So you ask yourself, will it promote peace? Does your decision promote gentleness? Because next he says, wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle. When a decision revolves only around us, without consideration to God or our neighbor... We can be very pushy and not gentle in urging our decisions upon others. And if we're not, or if we are the ones at the center of our decision-making process rather than God, then we will also not likely be open to reason. We've made our decision. We're not going to listen to anybody else. Nor might we be. Um, open to mercy. You know, we might not be merciful to those who disagree with us. But if God is at the center of our pursuit of wisdom, at the pursuit of our decision-making process, then we don't take it personally when someone disagrees with us. So you see where I'm going here with this verse? Use this verse as a way to, um, to filter your decision-making process as a way to pursue wisdom, godly wisdom in your own life. This is a way that the fear of God uh, stands at the center 
And then your wisdom grows as a result. And I believe that as you use this verse, maybe other verses in the Scriptures that talk about wisdom, that you will gain wisdom beyond your years. And I must add, that don't you're not simply to look at these Bible verses, but you're to go to Jesus Christ, because He is the source for wisdom. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 says that uh, in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And He loves to pour out His wisdom to us because He loves us so much. He loves to bless those for whom He went to the cross, died for, and rose again uh, in their behalf. The reason I'm speaking about the pursuit of wisdom is because Solomon tells us that wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So look at verse 19. You know, most cities would be very fortunate indeed to have at least one wise ruler. Solomon says that if you personally have godly wisdom, you are like a city with ten rulers. So in verse 19, he says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise, or, sorry, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Wisdom makes you exceedingly strong because when wisdom governs your will, then you make wise choices in life. When wisdom governs your speech, you know what to say. You know when to say it. You also know when you should keep your mouth closed. When wisdom governs your actions, you'll know what to do in a wide variety of situations. So take hold of wisdom because it will make you strong. Not too many people are wise. It is rare to find a person who exercises wisdom in their life. Solomon alludes to this in verse 20 and also verse 23. So in verse 20 he says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Verse 23, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. I'm going to return to verse 22, I'm sorry, verse 20 and 23 in a bit. But first, what Solomon does is he gives us two examples of how to exercise wisdom. And really what he is doing here is he throws up a couple of really difficult challenges. Even for the person who is seeking to live a wise and godly life, these two challenges uh, stand against us and are very challenging to our pursuit of wisdom. The first challenge Solomon places before us is to take is is this matter of taking to heart what others say about you. Look at verse 21. He says in verse 21, "Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing." Now, if we lived in a perfect world, it'd be a lot easier to live a wise and godly life. But we live in a fallen world. People are going to talk about you. People are going to disagree with you. 
People are even going to insult you from time to time. Here in his illustration, uh, it appears that you maybe have walked up and heard someone else uh, talking badly about you. When this happens, it is awfully tempting to let pride get the best of us and we respond in kind. But Proverbs 19, uh, verse 11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So don't let your offended feelings or your pride allow you to uh, act unwisely. Sometimes things said about you or things even said to you are things you need to hear. Some criticism can be helpful to you even when it is not given with a loving motive. You need wisdom to know what to hear and receive and what to ignore and overlook. And I think that's what, what, uh, what Solomon is telling us here. Also, before you get on your high horse about what somebody dared to say about you or dared to say to you, you need to consider that you have said um, things about other people behind their back that were not too flattering yourself. And so that's what he says in verse 22. He says, Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Ouch! (laughs) That stings. It stings because we all do it. And we do it so frequently. That's why I had us use James 3 in our confession to sin. Our tongues are a restless evil. We speak poorly about the children of God. Brothers and sisters, it should not be so. The second challenge to our living wisely is found in verses 25 and 26. And so he says in verse 25 and 26, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. This passage warns us in general of all the different temptations that entice us to gratify our own sinful desires. Being entrapped by our own desires leads us away from living a wise and godly life. In fact, nothing is so devastating to our own walk with Christ than being preoccupied with our own self-gratification. Pursuing self-gratification is so dangerous because it holds out this promise to us. If we can just grasp, if we can just finally be fully satisfied, hearkening back to our earlier uh, studies in the book of Ecclesiastes, if I can just have this uh, satisfaction, if I can just uh, capture it, but we can never be fully gratified. We can never be fully satisfied. And so we keep chasing 
Eventually, we are ensnared. Countless Christians have wasted years of energy chasing that which ultimately leads them further and further away from Jesus Christ. Now, we cannot overlook the fact that Solomon is specifically speaking to men who become ensnared by the seductions of sexual sin. He is not just talking about the physical act of adultery or fornication here. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, she also appears on the television screens and on the computer monitors. She has entrapped many a Christian man. Have any of you fallen into her seductive trap? If you give in to her enticements, Solomon tells us that, it were, that the result will be more bitter than death. Men, teenage boys, or teenage young men, listen to me. There is a way of escape. You don't have to be ensnared with no possibility of ever getting out. I know we like saying that the temptation to lust is nearly universal among the male gender, and that temptation that, that the temptation of lust lasts throughout life, but the Bible is clear. There is a way of escape. Look again at verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. We make God out to be a liar if we allow ourselves to believe that we are hopelessly given over to this or any sin. There's always an escape. 1 Corinthians 10:13 No sin has no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will provide a way out from under it. Or as Solomon says here, the man who pleases God escapes her. You know, there's a lot I could say about this subject that might prove helpful. I'm going to resist this morning because I simply want you to hear that the Bible says, He who pleases God escapes her. Never say that you cannot stop sinning. Always believe that by the power of God, the Holy, by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, there's always a way to run from temptation. Just like Joseph did when he was caught in the, glut, in the clutches of Potiphar's wife. Don't rely on your self-discipline as your only resource. Believe the gospel. Cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. Take your sin to the foot of the cross. Confess it to God. Meditate on His great and precious promises. Pray for holiness. You may want to have a, a friend to pray for you as well. Seek Christ and His kingdom. Center your joy in Christ and by His grace. He will deliver you from the snares, the nets, and the fetters 
that can appear so very strong. I said a mouthful this sermon. I imagine, however, there are some of you who have paid very little attention to what I've said because you are so eager how I'm going to address verses 27 and 28. These two verses are one of those pits that once you fall into it, it's hard to dig your way out. (laughs) So what is verses 27 and 28? Behold, this is what I have found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. (laughs) All right, I've wrestled with these verses. I have several helpful things I'd like to say. I'm going to sidestep these two verses, especially verse 28 this morning. I'm willing to talk about these verses after the sermon. Uh, I think it would take too much time for the little time that I have left, and I know that I might could overhear some of you after the sermon saying, well, that was a cowardly approach. And I'm going to take Solomon's approach and say, I'm not going to listen to it. (laughs) Um. We will get there as I plan after this sermon series. We'll do a a short series on the sacraments, maybe two or three sermons. And then we'll get to to 1 Timothy. At the end of 1 Timothy, this issue will come up again. But my concluding point for this sermon is too important to let verses 27 and 28 distract us. My concluding point is, is Solomon's final point in this chapter. Verse 29, he says, See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God created man in righteousness. But since Adam's fall, mankind, men and women, little girls and little boys, old men, old women, we've all become schemers. Humanity schemes against God to justify our own wickedness. And then we scheme against God to become our own source of righteousness and wisdom while rejecting God's righteousness and wisdom that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. The righteousness of, the unrighteousness of man has been central to Solomon's thoughts here in this passage. And so we could return back to verse 20 and verse 23. He says in verse 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Or again, verse 23, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. So the subtext of Solomon's passage here in in chapter 7 is that wisdom is so hard to attain, not because God is stingy in dispensing wisdom, but rather because we are so unrighteous. I'm going to be blunt. We are sinners. We have not just morally missed the mark from time to time. Rather, before we came to Christ, our very nature was inescapably self-consumed and opposed to God. And even as Christians, we are all too susceptible to temptations and to self-seeking. That's why our attainment of wisdom seems so elusive. We don't step outside our own little circle of concern to spend time with the one 
in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When you make for yourself the excuses that you make for not reading the Bible, or for not being disciplined in prayer, or for not, or for allowing your dalliances with sinful self-gratification to continue, you are willing, you are willingly cutting yourself off from His wisdom because you're placing yourself at the center. But here's the gospel. God loves you in spite of you and your excuses. Solomon is telling us that this is the common condition of all mankind, even for Christians. We lack wisdom because we unrighteously put ourselves at the center of our purposes and our pursuits. He's telling us this so that we won't get discouraged and we won't stop seeking Him because when you're not finding wisdom, when you ask Him and you beg Him time after time and it seems like things are getting worse and worse and you don't know how you should uh, act, how you should trust God in this particular situation and it seems like heaven's closed off to you. Solomon's saying, this is normal because we are unrighteous and we put ourselves first instead of putting the fear of God at the center of our purposes. He's telling us that wisdom is not far from any of us. In fact, wisdom is always near to us, as near as our Lord Jesus Christ is, who has sent His Holy Spirit to make our heart His home. Christ died for us. Christ rose from the grave for us. Christ conquered death and hell for us. And He will give us the wisdom we need that we might shine for Him. So don't be foolish. Jesus tells us at the end of Matthew chapter 7, the wise man builds his house on a rock, which is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we are considering this passage and we want to live wise lives. Lord, because we have come to know our Lord Jesus Christ and He has shed His love abroad into our hearts. We want to have Christ at the very center of our being and in the very center of our purposes and our decision-making process. But Lord, we often overlook Him. We often are so fixated on the things of this world and the things that are immediately before us that we fail to look at His great and precious promises, that we fail to cast our faith squarely and entirely upon Him. Lord, we ask for Your forgiveness. We ask that You would make us a wise people by clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ, because in Him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Lord, I pray for this congregation. Make us a wise church family as we seek You and as we seek to keep You front and center. We ask this in Jesus' ever-blessed name. Amen.